Welcome to Challenging Pseudoscience, where we explore how to tackle the destructive rise of scientific misinformation and disinformation. I'm science journalist Angela Saini, and in 2019, along with other British journalists, editors, academics and social media experts, I helped set up an informal group now known as Challenging Pseudoscience at the RI, with generous support from the Royal Institution and the Open Society Foundation. We come from a diverse range of backgrounds and we have a broad spread of political and intellectual views. We put on events and carry out research to help counter the rising trend of pseudoscience. These podcasts are recordings of our live public events. This episode was a panel discussion about vaccines, hosted by the Royal Institution in February 2021. The panel explored how vaccines work, why some people are sceptical of them despite the evidence, and how disinformation about vaccines spreads online. They also took questions from the audience, offering lots of practical advice. The discussion was chaired by the Financial Times science columnist, Anjana Ahuja. Welcome everyone to this Royal Institution live stream on vaccine information and disinformation. And I do feel somehow uniquely qualified to be hosting this because I have had both COVID and the jab and COVID lasted about two weeks and was absolutely awful. And the jab lasted about two seconds and I felt unbelievably emotional and happy and uh, just a buzz at the wonder of science. And I can tell you no real side effects, just a slightly sore arm. I had the Pfizer one and um, I'm just delighted to be on my way to being at least partly protected. I have to say we are in for a treat tonight. We have three panelists at the top of their game um, who know loads about this subject and they are going to share some information on this with you, their insights. And after we've done that, then we're gonna have a panel discussion. And of course you can write your questions into the chat box and we'll try and take as many of those questions as we can. And I'll also be calling on my right hand man, Martin, throughout the evening to keep us abreast of what's coming in. First of all, we have Dr. Zania Stamataki. She is a viral immunologist from Birmingham University. And it's over to you, Zania. Thank you very much, Ange. It's a pleasure to be with you this evening. Please write in and ask us lots and lots of questions. I'm going to tell you a little bit about myself as a viral immunologist, but I'm going to tell you a little bit more about vaccines as well. Vaccines are taking advantage of the ability of our immune system to remember when we have become infected with a nasty uh, virus or um, any sort of pathogen, parasite, bacteria, fungal infection. It takes a little while for us to kick off immunity. And during that time, while our immune system prepares, we feel poorly. Now, if one of those pathogens is a severe pathogen, and if your immune system is not strong enough, you might not survive the infection. What vaccines do is they give us a flavor of a harmless type of this uh, pathogen so that you can start to make your immune response more quickly uh, when you come up against the real thing. They are extremely uh, versatile. They can be updated and I'll tell you more about them. But a lot of the time also, you can hear this, this, this particular session is about disinformation. And you can hear a lot of people, probably including yourselves, your friends, your family, that may have concerns about vaccines. And sometimes you wonder who, who to believe. 
Are you going to believe the boffins that talk to you about immunology on the television? Or are you going to believe your friend on WhatsApp when you discuss things and you share your concerns? So I think a lot of it has to do with trust. And it is up to us scientists really to speak to the public and answer your questions. There is no such thing as a silly question. So please write to us with everything. Behind me is a beautiful artwork that shows a nasty mutated coronavirus and a healthcare worker saying, I can do this all day. So we'll get back to that. I, I like this because it, it gives me the opportunity to remind you that there's a lot of scaremongering around and there's no need for that, actually. We trust in science and we are very, very lucky that this particular virus can be um, combated with vaccines. So why should you listen to me? So I'm going to tell you a little bit about the work that I do, uh, but also it's interesting and it's important to understand that scientists are not just um, people that you see in the lab. I love immunology, I like viruses, I really like to read about things, I'm a massive nerd. So all the new science that is coming out uh, in preprint form, um, I talk to my friends on Twitter about it, uh, I like to read it, I like to understand it. I also like to go on social media and write articles and explainers to talk to people about science and answer questions. So I guess if we're going to back to our title of vaccine warriors and uh, warriors, I am kind of a vaccine warrior from that respect. I have taken the vaccine, but I also worry about the current situation. Um, I am a mom of two children of primary school age, happy to talk to you about kids and COVID as well. Um, I am a wife of a husband that's a patient-facing GP, so he has come um, up to face-to-face -to -face with a lot of poorly conceived PPE at the beginning of the pandemic. I'm also a daughter and a daughter-in-law, and you do worry about people that, that um, are reaching a certain age. You know, they have, especially even people of uh, a certain ethnic background, you worry about their susceptibility to infection. You worry what will happen once you get the virus. I'm happy to say that of the people that you see here of my family uh, above my shoulder, four out of the five adults have been vaccinated. So my husband and I got the Pfizer vaccine because we live in the West Midlands and that was available at the time. Uh, my in-laws have had the AstraZeneca Oxford vaccine because they live in Manchester and that's what was offered to them. It doesn't matter which vaccine you're offered, I would recommend you take the vaccine. We know that the vaccines work. I've got skin in the game as well. I mean, I've, I've been culturing the virus. As soon as the new virus came out, I was really, really interested. And I went down to Port and Down and I thank the colleagues in Public Health England that uh, signed me off to actually use the virus in the laboratory. And I've been using this virus without any vaccination for months. So when the vaccine was offered to me, I was delighted to accept. So let's go a little bit in more detail about what we know about the vaccine. I'm not going to give you the science now. I'm going to give you what we know. If you've got questions about any of this, ask and we'll expand in more detail. But first of all, the vaccines do work. There's a lot of evidence towards this uh, now from multiple different vaccines, different types of preparations, different types of people, different types of backgrounds. Vaccines are definitely safe. We have millions of people vaccinated now. We know what the side effects are. We know who might get them. They're really nothing to worry about. We also know categorically that the vaccines do not cause harm. We also know that the vaccines work for older people. 
and work for people from various different ethnic backgrounds that are more susceptible to severe COVID. We also know, funnily enough, despite what you have heard, that the vaccines work for the current variants that we have identified up to this point. The South African variant is a little bit more tricky, but you still develop an immune response against it. And vaccinated individuals still make um, antibodies against this variant. But we're keeping an eye out for variants as well, because it's absolutely natural that the virus will mutate in the future and it will escape our vaccines. So we will have to update them. And the beauty of the technologies that we are using at the moment is that we can update those vaccines very quickly and very effectively. It isn't like 20 years ago that we had to work with, with um, rudimentary technologies in biology. Just like 20 years ago, we didn't have the mobile phones that we've got at the moment. Currently, we've got fantastic vaccine technologies that we can um, update super quickly. And I'll tell you more about them if you're interested. We don't know the duration of immunity following vaccination. We know that you're going to develop uh, immunity because we can measure that, but we don't know yet how long it will last. So we will keep an eye on this and you might need booster vaccinations perhaps in two years, perhaps in three years time, perhaps in one year's time if the variants are escaping our, our immunity uh, like they do with influenza, for example. We don't know how the vaccines are going to work in children. Clinical trials at the moment are ongoing, and as soon as they are completed, we will know the answer to that. That brings me to the final point. Are vaccines experimental? Well, absolutely not. I mean, medicines and vaccines that had completed clinical trials have moved on past the experimental stage. They have been proven effective. They have been proven safe. And that's where they're being given out to millions of people worldwide. So I'm going to uh, leave it at that and uh, go back to the trust slide that I've got here. I don't have many tips on this, but I know that science cannot be wrong. Scientists can be wrong sometimes, but you can trust in science. The more data that we accumulate, the more we learn and we can trust in the truth of science. Hesitation as well has a cost. If you decide not to take the vaccine straight away, you are putting yourself at risk. So think about that. It's not like, I haven't decided yet. I'll wait and do it in a month's time. You have decided not to take it. So you might be at risk. You might put others at risk as well with transmission as well. Trust yourself. If you're having niggling doubts about your best friend talking to you about things that she doesn't particularly study for a living, do a little bit of research. And I understand that it is difficult. There's a lot of disinformation out there, but ask a lot of questions. There is no such thing as a silly question. Look for the evidence, look for reputable sources and speak to reputable experts that are backed by the profession. Brilliant, thank you, Zania. And we'll pick up some of those, I'm sure, in our panel discussion. So next we have Abigail Thorne. She is a professional actress and she's the creator of Philosophy Tube. And she has 800,000 subscribers, maybe more than that. And she's a specialist in creating public education content and has specialized in online radicalization. So Abigail, over to you. Good evening, Ange. Thank you very much. So yes, my name is Abigail Thorne. I am the creator of Philosophy Tube, which is an educational show with an audience of I think uh, knocking on the door of 900,000 now. I started the show when the government tripled tuition fees because I wanted to give away my philosophy degree for free online. And I've spent the last seven years creating content that is designed to educate, entertain and inform. 
Uh, and as you might expect from making my living on the internet, I have encountered a lot of people who believe some very strange things, from flat earthers to anti-Semitism to QAnon. That's the particular expertise that I've been asked to bring to bear today. So a while ago, a friend of mine who is a fellow creator went undercover in some online flat earth communities and found something very interesting. People who believe that the world is flat will often do experiments with cameras and lenses taking pictures across great distances that appear to show that the earth doesn't curve. And my friend happens to be a photographer, so he ran some of these experiments. And because he actually understands how lenses and the curvature of the earth interact, he, of course, did not get results proving that the world is flat. He got results that prove that it's round. And when he brought these results to the community's attention, they told him to pray over it. I think the number one thing that I would like to stress today is that in my experience, conspiracy theories are a form of political radicalization. And when I say political, this is what I mean. You should now all be able to see a diagram that I call the political iceberg, so-called because 90% of it is underwater. On the surface is every official political party, every party leader, and almost every single mainstream news story that has anything to do with politics. Below are the questions, who has power? When and where do I feel like they have power over me? And who should have power? And when people engage with conspiracy theories, they are considering those questions, even if it's just on an emotional level, even if they deny being involved or interested with anything above the waterline. So for instance, Flat earthers are almost never people who just happen to be wrong about photography. Rather, a large number of them believe that the earth is flat and therefore that shows that God made it special. And if God made it special, then those who realize this are the ones who should be in charge. In flat earth communities, you will find a lot of people who very seriously want to live in a Christian theocracy. Their real goal is political, and they are using flat earth theory as a means to get themselves there psychologically. Basically, they believe whatever they would need to believe in order to legitimize their political goals. In my experience, the same is absolutely true with anti-Semitic conspiracy theories, with QAnon, and with transphobic conspiracy theories, which we discussed a little bit before the panel started. They're a hot new one. You can look forward to seeing more of those. They all are structurally very similar, and very often they overlap as well. So this is what I'd like you to take away today. Conspiracy theories and political radicalization are not two things. They are one thing. And this is why it's actually quite difficult to pin down exactly what it is that some anti-vax conspiracy theorists believe. I've been studying some of their propaganda and it's often very scattergun. In the same leaflet, you'll find claims about 5G being bad, thrown in with graphs about the supposed effects of lockdowns, mixed in with claims that lockdowns are illegal, mixed in with claims about masks holding in toxins. All of these claims lack evidence. Some of them aren't even really testable, like the idea that masks hold in toxins. It's like, well, which toxins? What chemicals specifically? Um, and their claims being made in very different ways, uh, in very different domains from medical to legal. However, once you stand back and realize that they believe whatever they need to believe to justify the political thesis, it starts to make sense. And the political claim that a lot of anti-vax propaganda that I've seen defends is that the pandemic is being exaggerated or outright fabricated in order to justify greater levels of government control. And I think that if we treat 
conspiracy theories and anti-vax conspiracy theories as a problem of information, if we fail to address that political claim, then A, I don't believe that we'll succeed in getting through to these people in a major way. And B, I don't think we'll be ready for the real threat that they pose. If you take a flat earther and you manage through patient demonstration to convince them that actually the world is round, what you have is someone who is correct about the shape of the globe, but who still wants to live in a Christian theocracy. And that I would contend is the real problem because that is incompatible with democracy. The problem posed by QAnon is not that people are misinformed. It's that they support the idea of a fascist dictatorship achieved through violent purges. So by way of suggesting a conclusion, I think that anti-vax conspiracy theories are just one example of a much bigger problem and not to be doom and gloom, but I don't think that there is a technical solution. We can limit people's exposure. We can take down the communities where people are radicalized. Some social media platforms have tried that and it does seem to have some effect. Ultimately, however, I think this is a political problem and it's much bigger than is generally acknowledged. Speaking as a trans woman, in my opinion, the biggest driver of transphobic conspiracy theories in Britain isn't random people on social media, it's mainstream press and even government. Uh, unfortunately, a great many people are ideologically and financially incentivized to believe and print things that just aren't true. And there's no technical fix to that. I think the only real solution is political education because people are going to engage with these questions whether or not it is convenient for the people who make their careers above the waterline. And if you are going to go scuba diving, it is best to do it safely. Thank you very much, Abby. And that was really interesting for putting some of what we're talking about tonight in a cultural and political context. Although I do want to make clear that we're going to be covering not just you know, what you're talking about is quite an extreme end. And obviously there is a, a range of, you know, things going from anti-vax thought right through to vaccine hesitancy and so on. But we can come into that and I'm sure that we'll, we'll cover all of that. So next we have Mariana Spring, who will be familiar to many of us from our television screens. She is the BBC's specialist correspondent on disinformation and social media. And you've been at the sharp end of this, haven't you, Mariana? So over to you. Thank you, Ange. Um, hi, everyone. So as Ange said, I am the BBC's specialist reporter who covers disinformation and social media. And I've spent a lot of time recently investigating the impact of anti-vaccine disinformation on social media and the impact it has, particularly on those who have legitimate questions or concerns, who might be feeling apprehensive or hesitant, and how the tactics of activists online are, are often designed to, to prey on those fears and concerns. And most recently, I did a, an investigation for Panorama, uh, where I looked into this. So the Panorama was called Vaccines, the Disinformation War. And just a little bit about what I do firstly. So I report on and investigate the impact, origins, ecosystems of viral disinformation and conspiracy theories across BBC News. So for online, TV and radio for a variety of different audiences. I cover social media literacy, how you can spot and stop the spread of falsehoods and conspiracy theories online. I hold accountable with my reporting social media sites and government um, and the way that they handle online disinformation. And I work with a brilliant team of experts at the BBC, at BBC Monitoring, BBC Trending and Reality Check, which might be bits of the BBC you've heard of before. Um, I'm very, very passionate 
above all about humanizing the impact of online disinformation and about speaking to and uh, engaging with those people who are affected in the real world by what's being shared online. And I think that's one stark realization that a lot of people have come to over the past year that online disinformation has a real world impact. It causes harm. And a lot of my reporting and investigations have focused on that. This specific uh, investigation for Panorama, which was focusing on anti-vax, looked at the impact of a social media blitz. Exclusive research from our team exposed just how much followings of anti-vax accounts have increased over the course of the past year, particularly since the pandemic began. On Instagram, they had increased fivefold by 4 million. Facebook pages, so that's not including groups, had, had acquired nearly a million more followers. Facebook says that it does remove harmful misinformation, including about vaccines, and it points people towards good information. But as our investigation showed that, doesn't seem to be working. And I wanted to see who this has affected and who it's impacted. Um, and my investigation began when this lovely lady, Rosemary, who's sitting on the left, got in touch with me. She's sitting with her husband, Donald. She lives in Norwich. And she emailed me to say, Mariana, I've been sent this video on WhatsApp. She'd heard me on the radio. And it's really frightened me. It features lots of people, some of whom are brandishing medical credentials or scientific expertise. And contrary to the scientific evidence in the video, some of them claim that the vaccine isn't safe, that it'll change your DNA, or even that COVID isn't real. And Rosemary felt really unsure and really frightened about having the vaccine. She didn't know whether when her GP surgery got in touch with her, she'd say yes or no. Um, having felt pre before that quite confident about it. And so I decided I wanted to investigate this video and the impact that it has, because this is one of the latest tactics that's being used online uh, to try and dissuade people from having the vaccine. And that is uh, using medical credentials, using scientific expertise to then go on to promote falsehoods, claims that are not true about the vaccine, whether that's for some other ulterior motive is, is another question uh, more broadly. And it's worth pointing out that the majority of people in the UK at the moment do want the vaccine, but there are people who are hesitant and a committed minority of activists online, some who have been historically anti-vaccine and others who have been promoting pseudoscience conspiracy theories throughout the pandemic, have turned their attention to exploiting that nervousness and that fear that's being felt in different communities. So I decided to test the impact of this video that Rosemary had seen on a panel of people. And they were from Facebook groups up and down the country, all of whom were undecided about having the vaccine, often with very legitimate questions and concerns, wanting to understand how the vaccine was developed or the side effects it can have. Um, and they watched this video under the watchful eye of uh, Professor Liam Smith, who works at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. Um, and really interestingly, half of the group felt more unsure about having the vaccine after watching that video, which shows you just how powerful these tactics can be in exploiting pre-existing questions that people might have. Uh, luckily, Professor Smith was able to step in and answer all of their questions. And by the end of this experiment, they all felt more reassured about having the vaccine. But I think it tells you two things. Firstly, how powerful those tactics are. And secondly, how hearing from a trusted doctor, a respected doctor who can answer people's specific concerns and questions is often crucial when it when it comes to dealing with the issue of vaccine hesitancy. 
There were other people I met during my investigation. Uh, this is a woman called Joanna. She uh, found me on a Facebook group. She was attending a protest just before Christmas in Brighton that was an anti-lockdown protest where there were a number of people promoting anti-vaccine conspiracy theories, the idea that Bill Gates is trying to kill everyone or this is part of some mass plot. Here I was speaking to her on the train and she said to me, under no circumstances will I have a vaccine. I'm not going to be vaccinated. I don't think I need it. I don't know anyone who's been seriously ill with coronavirus. I don't want to have it. She's now had the vaccine, which is a, a spoiler alert if you did want to watch the panorama, um, because she's a carer and she felt like she should have it. And also because she'd seen lots and lots of people have the vaccine and realised that they weren't coming to serious harm, as she'd perhaps been told they would. And I think that tells you quite a lot about the changing attitudes as the vaccine rollout happens. And also how someone who gets involved in Facebook groups can become radicalised by those around them and the kind of community that that they feel a part of particularly at a time when lots of people are feeling anxious a lot of people are feeling quite lonely and a lot of people are spending a lot of time on social media another person I interviewed was Sarita she's in her 60s she's got two adult children both who um, have disabilities and she'd seen lots of scary conspiracy theories shared on whatsapp false claims that the vaccine contains meat or aborted fetus cells and it put her off the vaccine even even microchips which people may or may not have heard of before and it made her feel really scared her whatsapp was being bombarded with these conspiracies including in the form of uh, people claiming that they are scientific experts or brandishing their credentials and it made her not want to have the vaccine she decided she was not going to have it her children were not going to have it and it was only with the help of a local doctor uh, Dr Amit Bakai who was running Zoom sessions in both Gujarati and in English for the community that she had those myths debunked again a, a really good example of doctors and professionals and scientific experts dedicating their own time to helping their communities, um, which is what Dr. Bakai did here. And it's not just people who are impacted by anti-vax conspiracies on social media. There are people like Helen, um, who's pictured here, who genuinely was just feeling very hesitant. She felt unsure about having the vaccine. She She had questions, she wanted answers. She felt like she didn't have access to clear information that she understood. She was the sort of person that could have been exploited by anti-vax conspiracies online. She'd actually just lost her dad to COVID. And even then, she still felt very apprehensive about the vaccine. And so I think that this, uh, I think this breadth of characters really tell you a lot about the situation right now in the UK, and how the anti-vaccine movement uh, online is exploiting pre-existing fears and and the damage it can do and the impact that it can have Um, and how it relates to this issue of vaccine hesitancy I often you know I cover the impact of disinformation and conspiracy theories obviously you know there are lots of concerns and questions people can have about the vaccine that don't fall into that bracket but the way they interact with each other are the tactics that are used online to exploit those specific concerns and fears and that's what I spend a lot of time doing Um, and I think what's crucial when investigating and reporting on this is to really empathize to try and understand what's happening to talk to people and and work out how this ecosystem works. I also interviewed those who were deliberately spreading disinformation to try and understand why they were doing so. And I think by doing that, we can all better understand this ecosystem, how it works and how ultimately it seeks to con people to dissuade them from what is a life or death decision to have the vaccine. In the end, Rosemary and Donald had their vaccine and they were very happy. So it was a happy ending. But how many more Rosemary and Donalds are out there is another question. Thank you so much, Mariana. I want to get straight into our panel discussion. Some amazing points came up and all very diverse, you know, concentrating on social media, 
politics. But I want to go back to you, Zania, at the beginning and just ask you, do you think some of the hesitancy or the doubts about vaccines represent the difficulty that we have in weighing risk? Yes, I definitely think that there were reasons to be hesitant. People never thought about vaccination deeply previously before this pandemic. People would just uh, take the vaccines offered to their children by the doctor without really questioning much and without really feeling the need to understand how the vaccines are prepared. So as people understood more about the virus, as people understood more about the pandemic and the immune response, they were asking quite rightly more and more questions about vaccines work. And people that never had an interest in biology previously were coming up with a list of questions and with an understanding of the risk of testing new medicines with the risk of testing new vaccines. Where the problem lies, and that's, that's where we're getting people hesitating, is they don't understand how we overcome those risks. The media and their friends and their family really enjoy talking about the risks, but they don't spend enough time saying how we mitigate those to approve a medicine. Not very many of us know what a new type of drug or a vaccine has to go through to be approved. And in fact, if you think about it, if it had been given to thousands and thousands and thousands of people all around the world from different backgrounds, different ages, different groups, and you don't have incidences of adverse effects that would put you off having this. I don't know if you remember actually, at some point when the clinical trial was happening for AstraZeneca Oxford vaccine, that they had stopped the vaccine briefly because there was somebody that had had an adverse effect that could have been because of the vaccine or it could have been completely unrelated. So the trial stopped, everything was investigated, the trial continued again. There are meticulous tests that are happening before we release something like this. So scientists understand this and they are more comfortable with those risks. The other risk that um, came up is particularly with the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines, people were talking about new technology. The mRNA technology was not widely distributed previously. Now, yes, for vaccination in a large scale, it hasn't been distributed previously. That's why it was rigorously tested before it was proven safe. But in the laboratory, we've been using mRNA for years to make cells make proteins. We fully understand how this works. We just had to test the preparation for safety. I want to go to you, Abigail, and just pick up your point, which is really eloquent about the ecosystem or the culture we find ourselves in and the political point. And I'm just wondering that this pandemic in a way has been so political. Um, you know, we've we've had, you know, the coronavirus regulations and so on, which have put real constraints on, on our lives. If you are a natural libertarian, a lot of people don't like it. And I'm wondering if there is anything peculiar about this moment, this crisis that we're in, that makes people more susceptible to the kind of thinking and radicalisation that you talked about. I think it's certainly possible because, of course, we're not just in one crisis, we are in a period of history with multiple overlapping crises. COVID has revealed many of the, of the crises that have been brewing for a long time. I mean, we, we, can't, we can't really talk about the impact that COVID has had on the UK without mentioning the impact that decades of austerity have had on the healthcare service, without mentioning the fact that political decisions have led to us having one of the worst death rates in the world. 
and also more broadly without talking about the fact that our political system has so far largely failed to hold the people responsible for that accountable. So yes, I mean, I, I think that we are living through uh, what historians call the cool zone. And so a lot of political crises are overlapping. So this has been just one more straw on the camel's back. And do you think that people turn to perhaps extreme groups in order to regain a sense of power in a world in which they've had a lot of the power stripped away from them? Yes, yes, I think they do. Um, I suppose my footnote to that would be who gets to decide what counts as an extreme group. But yes, in general, I think that's probably true. Mariana, I want to ask you about one thing that's causing a lot of concern at the moment with the UK vaccine rollout. And that is something that actually affects my friends and family as well, which is the hesitancy in the Black and Asian and ethnic minority communities. Do you know why that is the case? Why there is particularly low take up in those communities? It was something that I investigated during the course of the panorama. And I think there are, there are multiple reasons for different communities being especially hesitant. When it comes to the black community, I interviewed Lord Simon Woolley for my programme. He spoke really powerfully about the issues of uh, mistrust in the government, legacies of you know bad experiences that people have had, racism, inequality when it comes to healthcare, and those factors amplifying that issue of distrust, mistrust, and people feeling unsure about trusting the government and having a vaccine as a consequence. And so he was doing lots and lots of Zoom sessions to try and speak to the community and encourage them that in this case, this is a good thing, this is important, this is a way of keeping yourself safe, particularly because Black and Asian communities have been the worst affected by coronavirus in comparison to white communities. And when it comes to the South Asian community, talking to Dr. Bakai, who had a lot of insight into this, he thinks it's a multitude of different problems. Some of it came from language barriers, from particularly those uh, older people within communities not necessarily being given the information in a clear way that they understand or even being communicated with. And then also the issue of disinformation playing on the particular fears of particular communities. When that comes to the South Asian community or Asian community, that has often been uh, playing on particular religious concerns, the idea of meat being in the vaccine, pork being in the vaccine, that kind of thing. Similarly, with the black community, there are specific conspiracy theories or disinformation that focus on incidents in the past to do with vaccine trials and otherwise, particularly that have happened in African countries, and trying to suggest that this is part of some plot again. And those have been really popular. So I, I think it's a combination of distrust. I, I mean, there was someone else I spoke to who felt lots of people in the Asian community in Bradford, where she was from, felt like the government had blamed them at times for the spread of coronavirus. And as a consequence, they felt very distrustful of the government when it said, well, now you're, you know, you're first in line to get the vaccine. This problem is just exacerbated by the online disinformation and the tactics of activists who prey on the particular concerns and questions and fears. I mean, it's the same when you think of younger women or other, other communities where particular bits of disinformation, the idea that the vaccine would make you sterile or infertile when there's no biological mechanism by which any doctor or scientist who's well-respected thinks that would be the case plays on the concerns of those specific people. And I think that's one of the ways that the tactics have been quite clever online because they seek to exploit what they know are pre-existing concerns or fears. And just to clarify, there are no ingredients in the vaccines. No, I've spoken to many a doctor, no meat, no pork, no aborted fetal cell lines are included in the vaccine. Those are all things that you can be very sure are not going to be in your vaccine. And I feel like you, Mariana, should be talking to Abby 
because that is a really interesting what you say about a minority ethnic communities perhaps feeling disenfranchised. I don't know how much you've dug into that, Abby. Do we know, are there particular communities that gravitate toward, towards the kind of radicalisation that you're talking about in this, in particularly with vaccines? I'm afraid I don't have any data on that with regards to vaccines in front of me. A lot of the anti-radicalisation that I've done or, or sort of had experience with, it's been white cis men gravitating towards it or cis women gravitating towards it in the case of transphobic conspiracy theories. QAnon is an interesting one in that QAnon has quite broad demographic appeal, but I, uh, I don't have any data uh, in front of me at the moment mm. about whether particular communities take up anti-vax conspiracies. So I, I'd be reluctant to speculate on it, I think. No, I appreciate that. Do you think some of the hesitancy and some of the, the ways that anti-vax groups get in into this area is to do with the fact that the vaccine has been so fast? It, you know, we have had multiple vaccines, hundreds of vaccines in trials. And I am astonished, actually, that we have multiple vaccines ready to go. They've been in the clinical trials. It's not even, you know, waiting approval. They're actually being rolled out and millions of people are having them. Do you think there's an element that you know, people are a little bit alarmed at the speed that all this has happened? Perhaps, Zania, you could explain why they've been produced so quickly and where the corners have been cut. That is a very important point to make, that we don't really believe that corners have been cut in the preparation of those vaccines. We do know a lot more now than we used to know many years ago when it took us 10, 15 years to go from a, a, the first experiment of discovering a compound to taking it into clinic. We have learned a lot. Of course, that we have also had the urgency of finding medicines that work to deal with this ongoing pandemic. We were losing people in their thousands. We're still losing people in their thousands uh, every day. We were under pressure to generate something that would be given in a global scale. This has meant that we had to put into place unprecedented infrastructure to not only make the medicine and test it, for which corners were not cut, but also to source little things like the tubes that will hold the medicine, the little bottles that you have to make to, to distribute it everywhere. And then of course, put in place the structures that they're going to disseminate the vaccine. So we are um, operating at warp speed. Um, we are choosing the vaccines that work to disseminate. 200 vaccines in preparation at the moment and they come from different types of backgrounds as well. Some of them have got proteins of the virus, some of them have got uh, mRNA that translates into proteins that our cells will make of the virus, some of them have got inactivated virus particles that have, are representing the entire virus. There are multiple different technologies at play and we didn't know at the beginning which ones were going to work best, so we trialled them. And some of these vaccines were ready at that stage to go into human clinical trials because we understood enough about those products and we, we were able to um, take them into humans straight away. A lot of the vaccines that are still in preparation had to go through preclinical models first, which basically means they're going into animals to first see if they're effective, to first see if they're causing any undesired effects and then take them into humans. So due process is being kept when you develop those medicines. But then of course they're tested and usually where things fail is that we might not be effective. What we are seeing here is not just that we have new 
technologies that we can use, new safe vaccines that we can use, but they're also effective. And this is fantastic. I remember one of the columns that I wrote, it was very controversial at the time, was, was about this idea of dose spacing. And what was interesting about that was picking up what you were talking about, Mariana, and when people talk about vaccines with credentials, and actually here was a perfect example where you had one group of doctors saying, let's extend the spacing between doses, it's fine, you know, we can do that. And actually other doctors quite vehemently saying, um, no, we should stick with the script you know, we must give um, the second dose three or four weeks after the first. Are disagreements like that fertile ground for those who want to spread disinformation and misinformation, do you think? It's interesting now that we are discussing this in an open field, how these things can be viewed as fertile ground for disinformation. These conversations are actually fertile ground for improved medicines. These conversations are being had all the time between scientists and clinicians when we go to conferences and we grab a beer and we go to the bar afterwards and we say, we need to try it like this. No, we need to try it like that. We need to test to see what works. And we share ideas and we share practices and we learn and we refine what we know and we do better. But now, if you take this out of, out of the scientific context, it is quite legitimate that the public might think that, oh my goodness, the boffins don't know what they're doing. They're making it up as they go along. So that's why we have to control the narrative. We need to be clear about what risk we are taking when we are extending the vaccination spacing, for example. Quite rightly, some scientists believe that, okay, for the Pfizer vaccine, it's only been trialed for three weeks. We know it's amazing. It's not broken. Don't fix it. And other scientists are going to say, well, you know, we know how vaccination works. We've been vaccinating for years and years and years with multiple different vaccines. We know how long the immune system takes to mount an immune response and how to boost it. And we're losing people. We don't have enough vaccines. We're losing people every day. We have to give the first dose to everyone to reduce deaths. This is a critical time that we, we can do the best we can. So these are the conversations that we are having. They're not actually conversations that need to get the public worried. If anything, they're going to lead to better refined ways of making sure that we save lives. Excellent. Martin, I want to go to you and see what our audience is making of this and whether we've had some questions come in for our panel. Oh, we have had absolutely hundreds. So I'm trying to group them just to try and capture what everyone's been saying. So we've had a lot of questions about long-term effects of the vaccines, because obviously we've only tested them per year. So how can we be sure that in 5, 10, 15, however many years, that you know there won't be problems? And off the back of that, there's a few people asking about how the different vaccines work, and, and is it not unreasonable to prefer a vaccine that's you know, tried and tested, whereas I believe the mRNA technology is a little bit more experimental. So should people you know, be concerned about that? Some other people then talking about, you know, they themselves are very fine with taking a vaccine, but get lots of questions from relatives and you know how can how do how do you know they're giving me the correct vaccine how do you know and lots of mistrust so so maybe some people asking around 
how to talk to relatives, how to bring them around, how to sort of engage with people who haven't quite slipped into the hardcore ends that Abby's been describing, but are maybe in the more hesitant end of, oh, it's a bit new, I'm not, I'm not too sure. And then there's also been a whole bunch of kind of very direct science questions. Are any of the vaccines easier to tweak for new variants that come out? Are you allowed to give blood after taking the vaccine? Is the vaccine okay for women who are trying to conceive or pregnant? And should we maybe be vaccinating young people earlier than people in middle age because they're more likely to go out and go to parties and spread it everywhere uh, versus people who are 40 like I am who just like staying in pandemic or no pandemic. Um, so yeah, a whole, whole lot of stuff. Lovely. Thank you, Martin. So let's go straight into those. Now, I like this one, the long-term effects of vaccines, because obviously this vaccine has been rolled out very quickly. Uh, is there anything that concerns you? And if, if you're not concerned, why are you not concerned? So the reason that I am not concerned, and I took the vaccine when it was offered to me without worrying at all, is because it doesn't stick around. Any effects that you might have, you will have them soon after you've been vaccinated. The next day, you might have a sore arm. Um, you might mount an immune response, which is a good thing, by the way, and feel a little bit poorly when you get the vaccine, get the sort of mild effects of, of the disease that shows that your immune system is working. And in fact, people that have had COVID previously, they, they say that, oh, when you have the vaccine, you may feel a little bit more flu-like symptoms that you, that you might get, which is good. You're showing your, your immune response that it's working. But the vaccine does not persist in your body for months on end and years on end. Um, and that you're not going to have adverse effects afterwards. You might have, and some very few people that are prone to allergic reactions, like me, for example, you may have an allergic event. And that's not just for the coronavirus vaccine, that's for any vaccine that you might get. It's a foreign thing, it gets into your body, some immune systems are going to pounce. So when you're vaccinated, you're asked to stick around and wait for about 15 minutes in the next room, and then go home. And they do this to make sure that you're not getting an anaphylactic reaction, you're not getting an, an allergic reaction. If you do get an allergic reaction, there is no need to panic. You get given medicines, you get given your antihistamines and you're absolutely fine. So you are protected from COVID and you're protected from the allergic effects. So there was absolutely no worry. The, the vaccine, the compound of the vaccine is destroyed, probably lasting um, for only a few days in your body. Definitely more than a month uh, would be uh, impossible to detect. And in years later, I don't anticipate there will be any adverse effects. What about this idea that some of the vaccines, a bit like the, the AstraZeneca Oxford vaccine, is slightly more conventional technology, if I can put it like that, as opposed to the messenger RNA tech, which we've never had in a vaccine before. Is there any reason to think that mRNA does weird things in your body? No reason at all, actually. I mean, I've seen conspiracy theories of people that don't understand biology that say, oh, it's a nucleic acid, it will incorporate itself into your genome. No, that's not how biology works. Um, this will get degraded very quickly. And in fact, the companies that developed the, the vaccines, they were so successful because they found ways to stabilize it briefly so that it could be effective and it can work inside ourselves. These things um, self-destroy in our bodies very, very quickly, and they're not present anymore to cause any harm. Okay. Either Abby, Mariana, do you want one of you want to come in on how, if you as a person are being asked questions about vaccines, how how do we talk to people who are vaccine hesitant or actually just outright skeptical? 
obviously, if you're dealing with someone who has legitimate questions, concerns, it's really good to listen to them and to engage with what they're saying and to acknowledge that it's totally normal to have questions and point them towards good places for information, whether that's the NHS website or their GP or uh, a doctor or medical professional that they trust. I, I found doing the investigation for Panorama that that was often the best way of dealing with hesitancy. A lot of people have very specific questions about themselves. They might have a, other medical conditions that they worry could affect them having the vaccine or just sp- questions that are very specific to them. And I think having a real person answer those questions can be really helpful. I think if someone is um, believing or contemplating some of the more extreme conspiracies, and some of them aren't actually that extreme, there actually seem to be quite a large number of, I've found particularly young women who are worried about fertility and questions like that. I think that it's good to not only point them towards good information, credible sources, when it comes to the fertility question, Royal College of gynecologists and obstetricians or something like that have a great kind of explainer on their website from top doctors who really get this stuff uh, talking about it and that's a good place to go but I think also highlighting how some of the disinformation on social media might be playing a part in this and asking them where did you hear this where have you seen this and if they can point you to a video or a post that they've seen then either pointing them to another article or something online that debunks or investigates that particular video or post um, or just looking at who's giving them that information and revealing to them oh look they're also selling this on their website and trying to get people to do this or they've also said the pandemic isn't real and it was really interesting when when uh, I was investigating the particular video promoting anti-vaccine claims when we showed it to the panel a lot of people had legitimate concerns and questions and one of them who was worried about fertility heard these various people saying the pandemic isn't real and she thought well if they're saying the pandemic isn't real, I'm not going to trust what they're saying about the vaccine. So I think that those are the best ways of engaging in a conversation. But I think empathising and and constructive conversation is much better than having a kind of blazing row about it. Abby, you have had some success in de-radicalising people, haven't you? How do you approach those conversations? What what kind of dialogue do you have? And have you had those with members, you know, or close friends, people that you know? How do you approach that subject? Uh, well, I, I don't have experience, as far as I know, de-radicalising people specifically with regards to anti-vax content. Um, I've never made a video about it. But um, one, well, one tactic that I like to use, if I'm explaining a conspiracy theory or an idea that is dangerous or wrong, I will start off by saying very clearly, I'm about to tell you something which is wrong. And then I give the short version of it. Um, And then I say, I give the short version of why we know it's wrong. Then I explain the wrong thing in detail. And then I give the long version of why we know that it's wrong. Um, So you have like a a warning, short version, short answer, long version, long answer. And I usually wrap it up by saying, this is why it's important that you know this. And this is why it's important that you care about this. Um, I try wherever possible to avoid platforming directly conspiracy theorists. So for instance, I I would never sit down and have a conversation with a flat earther or with a QAnon believer or with a transphobe conspiracy theorist. I just would not do it because I I think that's incredibly dangerous to do, especially especially in front of an audience, especially a live audience. So I try wherever possible to avoid uh, platforming ideas that I know are bad. And just to give people like a little inoculation against it, um, I certainly agree with a great deal of what Mariana said about it's best to be empathetic. Um, and also, I, I think I kind of want to yes and that um, by, by saying that I usually try to connect it to, to these questions. And um, because I think that that's what people are often 
worried about. Uh, I noticed that Mar Mariana uses words like uh, credible, good, and top, um, which, which all, you know, we, we think that we know what these words mean, but sometimes people's concerns are, well, who gets to decide who's credible? Who gets to decide who's, a, who's an authority? There are certain questions that, you know, if you direct somebody to the NHS website, then they'll go, oh yeah, this is a credible authority. Some people that won't work. Um, and on, on, on some issues, um, the, the authorities that we call credible are in fact far from credible. <laughs> so I try always to, to have that empathetic approach and to pay attention to the fact that people are often engaging with much bigger philosophical questions than, than they realise. And is there also a sense, Abby, that people think, well, I don't care if my family wants me to take the vaccine. If I don't, I'm entitled to hold this belief, even if everybody tells me it's wrong. Is there an element of that, that people's become entrenched in their viewpoints? Certainly, yes. People often will say, I have a right to believe this, when that, that's completely irrelevant to whether or not they're correct. <laughs> but yeah, people do that all the time, not just with, uh, not with vaccination stuff, but with all kinds of things. People often... Um, this is something else I try to do is I try to avoid ever having anything that could be constructed as a competitive debate. Um, so lots of YouTubers engage in debates and stuff and I deliberately refuse to do that. I think that structuring a discussion as a competition is a terrible idea and a recipe for people getting very competitive and entrenching because they want to be right. They will cling to things that are provably nonsense uh, just in order to, to not feel embarrassed about being wrong. Um, so yes, I, I certainly think people do do that. Um, not just with this, but with uh, very many topics, unfortunately. Is and is there any way around that? Uh, well, something I've tried to do with my show is um, is to reject the logic of competition uh, in education. To say this is not a competition; you don't have to worry about being right. So often on my show, I will share times that I've been wrong. Or I will say, yeah, I know that this is right, but this is why I find it difficult to believe, but I can need to get over myself. So I, I often on my show deliberately share things that I'm insecure about when it comes to the topic that we're learning about, just to kind of try and try and diffuse it. I deliberately reject the idea of getting up and sort of being an authority. Um, so often I wear sort of costumes or include jokes which are really to sort of deliberately undermine my own authority um, so that people don't, don't kind of take it too seriously or think they're being lectured. So I, I will often try and try and do it that way and just try not to stage it as a competition and try not to kind of own anybody with facts and logic or say, this person's so wrong, I humiliate them. I don't do that at all. Um, I try to avoid it and uh, it, it seems to work. I think in some ways it's a mark of a true scientist because I'm writing a book about the pandemic at the moment, little plug. But what's been really interesting is the scientists I've been speaking to, I think nearly all of them who've done research in the pandemic have said, this is what I learned and I realised I was wrong. You know, they all had these little biases and you don't really know that you have them until you start exploring and then actually applying a scientific method to it. But anyway, on to, on to more of the questions. I wanted to ask, perhaps Zania, you might be the best for this one, about pregnant women taking the vaccine. Now, as I understand it, none of the vaccines were tested in pregnant women, but they are being given sort of in a trial now. Is that correct? As far as I understand it, so I, I'm not a medical professional, so I can't give you advice. You should talk to your doctor. I have to say that. But as far as I understand it now, there are clinical trials that are looking uh, at pregnant women and the safety of vaccination. 
So yes, wait for the data, listen to your doctor and look at your risk as well, because people that are receiving these vaccines at stages of their lives where they might be more vulnerable, they might be receiving those vaccines because it's best to be protected from a known risk than to shield against something that you completely hypothesize that could be harmful based on what you know in biology. And also the same for children. I think there's a trial ongoing with children there, yes, so the only one of the vaccines that has been currently approved has been given to uh, children over tw- um, 12 years of age, but the Oxford and AstraZeneca vaccine have started a clinical trial uh, with children as well, um, and we're waiting for data. The reason that kids did not take part in early clinical trials and they weren't a priority to begin with is because they usually uh, suffer milder forms of COVID and most of them are asymptomatic. That doesn't mean that they might not suffer more severe uh, cases of COVID, but as a population, they weren't at the top of the priority list. Um, So they weren't prioritized for that reason. But if we want to control the spread, it is helpful to think about vaccinating children as well. Do we know how much children contribute to transmission? Because this goes back to our earlier question Mm -hmm. that Martin threw in for us, which was a very interesting one, which is whether now we ought to be looking at younger people being vaccinated because they're out and about, they're mixing, they're in bars, nightclubs, or they will be when they reopen. Would that be a good idea? This virus is transmissible at an early stage of infection and asymptomatic type of infection as well. So there are people out there that might even not notice that they have any symptoms at all that could be infectious to others. And I think this is the success of this virus really, its secret weapon is transmissibility. So if we want to control the pandemic once and for all, and we vaccinate all adults that we're planning to do until the summer, we need to start to look at younger ages and we need to start to protect our children. Otherwise the virus will be percolating in schools and it will be filtering back. Uh, to the population as well. If you don't have symptoms, it is not as easy to infect others as if when you are coughing and splurting and uh, disseminating particles, but it is possible also to um, contaminate um, surfaces. It is possible to infect others. Vaccinating the children is going to help enormously in the future. The reason there isn't a ton of data for childhood uh, transmission is because a lot of them are asymptomatic, but we do know that they can become infected and we do know that they can transmit. So do we know now enough, do you think, to say that vaccines will help stop the spread? Yes, I think we do. I think there's early data now from two different vaccines that show that they can um, reduce transmission. If you look at the data at scale and the amount of people that are um, carrying the virus around the world, they are traveling and they are mixing. If you think that the protected individual is not going to suffer for two weeks and carry virus for two weeks and expose others around them for a long period of time to infection, uh, then you start to realize that even if the vaccines would not stop direct transmission, they would stop symptomatic severe infection that can prolong the period where somebody can become contagious. So yes, I think they would definitely help stop uh, transmission. Excellent. And that brings me, I suppose, to an interesting ethical question here with, with the vaccines, because then we are not only asking people to have the vaccine in order to protect themselves, 
but we're asking them to um, take it perhaps to protect others, particularly if they're younger, because the risk is, is slightly lower in younger age groups of being hospitalised or dying. I really want to come to you, Abby, because you're, you know, you're a f- philosopher. Does that change the calculation a bit about when we come to say to people, we, you know, you should have this vaccine, take it? Uh, well, first of all, I, I, I reject the label of philosopher. Uh, I'm an actress and a YouTuber. I, uh, but, um, well, yes, I, I think, I mean, eth- ethical considerations are supposed to always take priority. That's what they're supposed to do. Whether they ever do in practice, we'll see. I think one of the interesting, one of the interesting questions that I have heard discussed recently is um, from the point of view of minimizing the number of variants and potential vaccine resistant variants that emerge, it might be a good idea to start sending the vaccine overseas to countries in the global south and to immunize people there. But of course, that would be politically very unpopular because it means people, or at least people think that it would mean vaccinating fewer people here. Uh, yeah, I think, it's, I think it would come down to a political discussion, really. But yes, I mean, certainly you could make a, a, a decent ethical argument that it's, it's your duty to get vaccinated for the sake of other people. I, uh, I don't think that would be too controversial ethically. What, what do you think, Ma- Mariana? Does that ever come up? Is this idea, do people say, well, it's not going to affect me. You know, I'm young, I'm, in, I'm 20-something or 30-something. It comes up all the time. It's one of the things that I I found coming up really frequently when I was doing the panorama. There was a guy I interviewed who's 26, lives in Norwich, called Moonan. And he just said, oh, I just don't need it. I'm young, I'm healthy. I go to the gym twice a week. I just don't need to have it. And I tried to explain to him, oh, some people would say that's selfish because actually if you have the vaccine, you can protect other people. You stop spreading the virus. And he just said, oh, well, I, I just don't trust it. I don't want to have it. And I think that that's one thing that I felt while doing the investigation that right now, or particularly a couple of weeks ago, the people being offered the vaccine were people who see themselves as you know, acutely at risk from coronavirus, particularly those people kind of over the age of 70, frontline workers. Um, whereas once, once it starts to be, particularly people in their 20s and 30s who offer the vaccine, I think that we will notice that in the uptake in so much as I think some people just don't think they need it and uh, realise that personally their risk of dying from COVID is, is very slim, even if, and I, I think that that's, that's a question for public health messaging for people to better understand. And it was something that both of the doctors I interviewed for the Panorama explained very well, that the less coronavirus that's circulating within the community, the, the lower the risk of new variants that could be resistant to the vaccine and so on. I think lots of people just don't know that because the focus hasn't so much been on the messaging uh, it hasn't so much been on why you specifically should get the vaccine, particularly for younger people. At the moment, there are more people that want the vaccine than there are vaccines most of the time. Um, I interviewed Mary Ramsey, who works for Public Health England. She's the head of their immunisation programme. And she essentially said this, that because it's all happened so quickly, they haven't done the usual work that they would do in informing people as to why they personally should have it, particularly if they're younger or they don't see themselves acutely at risk. I think that could change if people are not able to travel or do things that they want unless they have the vaccine. But I think at the moment, I'm seeing quite a lot of hesitancy in those age groups, simply because they don't think they need it. What about long COVID? Is that a worry for some of the younger age groups? Because, I mean, I saw something, I think, today or yesterday suggesting that it's possible that the vaccines may help with that. But do, do they even 
contemplate, do younger age groups contemplate any other outcome other than going to hospital and dying and just think, well... In my personal experience, a lot of my friends and people I know are worried about that, that they not only are worried about passing on coronavirus, but they actually don't want to get it because they don't particularly fancy being very ill and they don't want long COVID. And there are examples of kind of people, you know, it's the classic, a friend of a friend who actually ended up being really ill and couldn't do stuff anymore. So I definitely think that is a worry. Um, But I think for some people who haven't just haven't seen that or experienced it in close proximity they're less worried about it I certainly found that with Moonam and a couple of other other younger people I interviewed just that to them it doesn't it didn't feel like so much of a threat they'd actually had family members have COVID and recover and not be acutely ill so it it felt quite outside of their own personal bubble and people like Moonam spends all his time on Instagram and he absolutely loves Instagram he doesn't really use the kind of traditional media outlets in, in the way that perhaps older age groups would and I think that contributes to this as well because it's often not the kind of main topic of conversation in those places and uh, he himself had been exposed to a lot of disinformation which I think contributed to his distrust in the vaccine but more broadly it wasn't people saying oh yeah it's a really good idea if you're young and he actually interestingly said he thought it would be good if influencers were encouraging people to get the vaccine uh, younger people and explaining why Um, and I think he's someone who had he had that kind of information maybe would make a different decision and perhaps still will even when I said to him, well, you might not be able to go on a night out, you might not be able to go, on, to go on holiday. And he just went, oh, it's fine. And I was like, I bet you won't be saying that to me in August. Yeah, and I, I can say one of the things that I would say is don't think you can avoid it. I mean, I caught it. We work from home. We have no idea how we got it at all. And so this idea that you can shield yourself and, and it's, a re- it's a risk. You run a risk, don't you? It's about balancing those risks. I want to go back to Martin. So what else have we got coming in? There's been a few people who are chatting about uh, MMR, which is a topic that's come up quite a mm-hmm. bit. Obviously, there was the controversy. Well, I wouldn't say it's a controversy. It was just wrong. Um, but anyway, but 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 do we think that's weakened people's, you know, uh, trust in vaccines generally? And also, I guess what's interesting about that is obviously what Andrew Wakefield was an English doctor. And so therefore, in the English speaking world, the MMR hesitancy and, and anti-vax thought became big. And I just wondered, did that? play out in any other countries and 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 has that affected different things i can throw through a few more questions as well actually somebody was saying if there are people who think covid is a scam how do they then reconcile with all the people that have died and all of that which is uh, probably demanding too much logic from uh, from people who push these kind of things some other people talk about the motivations of these people spreading anti-vaccine messages now now do we do we think it's clearly a kind of political trojan horse in the way that maybe QAnon beliefs or flat earth beliefs are or some of them genuinely think they're being helpful and passing along you know warning everyone you need to be warned about this or or i don't wonder if mariana and abby want to talk about that as well thank you martin so i'm going to go straight to you abby on two of those what's the motivation behind people spreading anti-vax conspiracies and aren't the people who spread them who think COVID is a scam how do they reconcile that with the death figures and the what we're going through? Uh, well I can answer them in reverse order uh, the second one how do they reconcile the death figures is is quite simple they, they do it the exact same way that AIDS denialists did um, in that they say they're dying of something else so when people were denying that AIDS existed and HIV existed they said, oh, these people are dying of pneumonia. They said, oh, they're just rebranding it as AIDS in order to sell you, you know, more, more drugs that don't work. Um, so they do it the same way. They say these people would have died anyway. Um, or you can just deny that those people have died at all. You can say this is made up. It's like hidden in the statistics somehow, you know, the, yeah. Um, so that, that's, that's fairly easy. You either deny it or you just attribute it to something else. 
As for the question of what is the motivation, well, it really, it depends. Uh, some people genuinely do believe that they are being helpful. I think in general, we, we should shy away from the idea that people have special motivations for this sort of thing. Really, their motivations are quite ordinary. Um, I mean, sometimes even mainstream news sources and, and government ministers spread conspiracy theories and their motivations are because it's part of their job. They just, they say, well, whether or not I believe it, it's my job to print this or it's, as, it's my job as an editor not to, not to kind of fact check this too aggressively, not to make waves in the institution. People have really very ordinary motivations for spreading this sort of thing. And some, yeah, sometimes it's genuinely to help, but sometimes it's a lot more mundane. It's just kind of like this, this is my financial incentive is to do this sort of thing. Some of the worst conspiracy theories that we have in this country are spread for very, very mundane reasons that it's people's jobs to do that or to look the other way. To add to that that last one, I think that um, I totally agree. And I, I also think that um, the influencer culture has played quite a big part here, that people gain massively out of growing huge online followings and saying quite polarizing things. Um, and a lot of those people I've investigated or, or interviewed um, have often been motivated by uh, the attention and the following and what comes as a consequence of that following, which in some cases can be financial gain. And that drives the spreading of conspiracies. I also think they become part of an almost cult-like group and they see themselves as a leader of that group. And that in itself is, is a benefit for them. I think though that uh, Abby's right in saying that there are people who genuinely do believe what they're saying. And I think they kind of fall into this slightly outer ring. You have the committed conspiracy activists who usually are doing this for personal gain, whether that be money or influence or political influence or something else. And then you have those people who fall victim to their techniques and go on themselves to spread disinformation. And I think in many ways, they are often uh, they are often the people that are really badly affected by this stuff. They make life or death decisions wrong. Um, they, they, they have been conned, they have been exploited, and they go on to kind of spread more harmful disinformation. So I think it's quite a complex ecosystem, but there are committed group of people with bad intentions, and they are good at persuading people who are feeling frightened or worried or lonely to subscribe to their worldview. The, the idea that people are, uh, are motivated out of a sense of attention um, or because they get influenced, that's very true. Um, but I, I'm reluctant to lay all the, maybe this is just because I am an influencer, I'm reluctant to lay all the blame at the foot of social media influencers because those are the same incentives that drive legacy media as well. The feeling that you are kind of at the head of a great cause or that you are, you know, alerting people to something. There are mainstream journalists who I will not name who, uh, who also fall victim to the same incentives. So that's, uh, it's not just an influencer thing, but I think the causes you've identified are, are bang on. Yeah, I mean, I am mainstream media and I have to say that our profession did not distinguish itself with MMR. Absolutely. And that, that was a terrible time as I was writing for The Times then. And um, I do remember having those conversations with my editor about, uh, about why we needed to write counterpoint pieces to the torrent of anti-MMR stuff coming out. And actually I'm really proud of the coverage that we did, but what surprised me was just how, um, how persistent the MMR controversy was. So Zania wondered if you could 
tell us a little bit about whether you've had any experience of this? I know that you're a mother of... Um... Yes, I, I can talk to you about it quite happily. I mean, the MMR damage has reached well beyond the shores of this land. I mean, all over the world, people had taken to social media to put each other off vaccines. And this was the conversation that was had from young uh, mothers that were talking to each other about natural products, vitamins. There was a, there was a company behind all this that was trying to make money out of natural homeopathic and all sorts of other types of, uh, of concoctions that would convince each other that you do not need science, you do not need medicine, you can have uh, natural remedies to keep yourself and your child safe. Of course, all, all of that is rubbish. Uh, of course, a lot of the medicines that we are using are natural products. Of course, vaccines are taking advantage of your own immune system, natural immunity, it's all natural. We're not really doing anything weird. It, it is all misinformation. But for the MMR, we could see the impact of this disinformation years and years afterwards. I have students at the university uh, that last year suffered from vaccine-preventable diseases. I had uh, students that had the mumps that had disappeared for a long time. Thankfully, those students that got them, they had been vaccinated and they had a very, very mild disease. But there were lots of toddlers that actually were lost to vaccine preventable diseases because their parents were a little bit unsure and they decided not to take action and think about it longer. This is why I'm saying that hesitation is a choice. It's not that you haven't made the choice yet. You've made the choice not to take action. You are putting yourself and your loved ones at risk. So, yes, I am in the business. I am an immunologist. I know I understand how these things work and I feel an enormous privilege that I live in a place where vaccines are available to my children. So uh, if you were going to ask me what, what I would do, take the vaccine. The worst that can happen is that the vaccine might not work. It doesn't work for everybody. Not all vaccines work for everybody. The coronavirus vaccine actually have got tremendous efficacy. But vaccines that you can use in the past, you know, for influenza, for example, we were accepting vaccines that were having 40 to 60% efficacy, and we would take it because it still saves lives, you know? It gives you a chance, it gives you a fighting chance. Why on earth would you not take it? The other thing that I wanted to mention is of course that the young here have not been offered the vaccine yet. So we don't really have those fancy influencers going around Instagram, taking pictures of themselves getting the jab because they haven't had it yet. So yes, I think that's really important. And it's really important. I think you, you saw, for example, uh, famous people stepping up and saying, I received the vaccine. That is really, really key. I mean, scientists are not trained to talk to people. They're not trained to go out and shout about things. I spent most of my youth in a dark room looking down a microscope. I cannot be expected to be charismatic when I turn up on the telly. We look awkward. We sit in an awkward way. The words don't come out as nicely as when we talk about incomprehensible proteins, for example. So we're not as charming and as uh, easy to convey these messages that could save someone's lives. That's why we need to employ everybody that has this charm, everybody that has the ear of, of people that you know, could listen to science and save lives to do that. Um, I know it sounds a bit nerdy, but yes, people need to do that. Celebrities need to do that. We need to, we need to um, employ everybody's help to get this sort of damaging misinformation that has come out of Wakefield and all the aftermath. You know, we need to get rid of that. 
I really think that following the pandemic, a lot of people that had been hesitant to vaccinate their children were encouraged to read more about vaccines, find out more about their immune system. So this is the hope. The hope is that people are now sick of lockdowns, tired of losing loved ones to a preventable disease. And now that we've got something um, that can work, we can take it and we can get out of this. So hopefully a lot more people now have educated themselves and we will see more vaccinations being accepted in the future. That's my hope. Martin, is there anything else that you would like to throw in at the last minute? A question that did pop up a few times was, was about the kind of the, the politics of, of um, the MMR vaccine and, and sort of link, linking it with disabilities is kind of a, it's kind of an in, interesting politically. And I just wonder if there are any comments around that have thousands and thousands of people that become vaccinated uh, and when there is somebody that uh, manifests a problem whether it is linked to the vaccine or not it is very difficult to prove if we had any concrete evidence that vaccinations could cause harm we would take them out of the circulation we're not in the business of going out harming people what, what would be the benefit of that it is difficult sometimes, particularly uh, for members of the public to, to not feel emotional when they read about stories of parents that said, oh, my, my child got the MMR vaccine and then, you know, we, we had problems, we was diagnosed autistic. But the research that linked the two was faulty. It was completely wrong. It was rubbish and it was discredited. There is no link between the two. If I look for correlations between things, I can find them, but that's not how science works. I did have um, quite a lot of friends who, because I had a toddler around that time, and my children have all their childhood vaccinations. And actually that was that seemed to be the most persuasive thing I could say, was that, was that actually I make sure my children are vaccinated. I will have any vaccine that is, that is going because it, it is the right thing me and uh, I hope that it will be the right thing for people that are watching tonight that you think really carefully I mean I would say go and talk to a health professional go and talk to people someone you trust and I want to ask the others Mariana, Abby just very quickly what would you suggest to someone who's feeling hesitant anti-vaccine what should they do just very quickly um, I think they should talk about their concerns. Like you say, they should turn to somebody they trust, whether that's their doctor, particularly someone in their personal life they might trust to talk through those concerns. I think that you can weaponize the very things that allow anti-vaccine disinformation to spread by actually investigating something yourself. You know, one problem is that bad information is often much more exciting or scary or engaging and good information is often a bit more boring and good doctors and experts and scientists talk to you about the risks and they can't guarantee everything. Um, and that's sometimes hard in this struggle, but I think that that's the kind of information that tends to be accurate and correct. So make sure that you yourself, you know, investigate it, look into it yourself, feel empowered so that you can make an informed choice about the vaccine. Abby? I think that's a very hard question because of course if I say you know oh you should absolutely get it well, go, well of course you'd say that because as, as people do say about me they say well you're because you're in the pocket of George Soros and Big Pharma of course you say. So I, I know it's very difficult to persuade people. Um, I guess I would invite people to think a little bit more critically about and, and try and pin down exactly what it is that we're, they're worried about and people often find that quite difficult. So, for instance, if people say, oh, I'm worried that the, the vaccine will give me autism, I can say, well, what, why do you think being autistic is a problem? I, I have many, many autistic friends who are wonderful. Sort of, so, sort of getting people to question why it is that they're worried about the things that they're worried about. 
and to encourage them to think a little bit more about the things underneath the waterline on the political iceberg, because people are often very sensitive. If I find people are very sensitive, if you tell them, don't think about that stuff, only focus on the things above the waterline, only focus on the mainstream news and the mainstream politics. And people are like, well, what about all this other stuff? So if people are gonna go scuba diving underneath that iceberg, I would try and help them to do it, uh, try and help them to do it safely and responsibly. Thank you, and Zania? What I wanted to say is, is not actually something that a lot of people want to hear. You do have responsibility to educate yourself. This is something that affects not just you, but the people around you. So unless you are somebody that is a militant anti-vaxxer that has already made up their minds and they've got an agenda and they're either making money or feel, feel power from it, uh, these people we're not talking to, they've already made up their minds. But if you're hesitant, I was going to say that you do have responsibility to make up your mind. So take the time to educate yourself as long as it takes, ask people, find out, because whether you get a virus and pass it on, which gives you responsibility, or whether you're responsible for dependents that rely on you to save their lives, that gives you power, that gives you responsibility. So if you're a mum and a dad, and you've got your little kids that are too young to make up their minds, whether they want measles or not, whether it can kill them, you know, whether you could save them or not, you do have the responsibility to do that. So as long as it takes, ask whoever you need to ask, keep digging, get your answers, because yes, you, you have to make up your mind. You have to live with yourself afterwards as well. Thank you. I, and I have to say, this has been a fantastic panel. I knew it would be wonderful, um, but I really want to thank Zania, Abby, Mariana for a really illuminating and empathetic presentation and discussion. Thank you for listening to this episode of Challenging Pseudoscience. Our work and this podcast have been supported by the Open Society Foundation. The producer is Hester Kant. Do share this episode with someone who you think might find it interesting and leave us a review wherever you're listening to it because it will help other people find the podcast. And please subscribe so you can get future episodes as soon as they're released. If you're interested in attending a future event like this, you can find a link to the Royal Institution's website in our episode description.